Welcome to Oscar Sunday. I'm Austin Johnson. I'm Connor Zagari. And today we are going to be talking about Undefeated from 2011, which won Best Documentary at the 84th Academy Awards. So that was about 10 years ago. Today is actual Super Bowl Sunday. So I <laughs> wanted to kind of incorporate American football with, uh, with uh, Oscar Sunday. This movie, of course, was, was only nominated for Best Documentary and won. Uh, it's in a pretty, pretty good group of documentaries, but Undefeated is powerful. You know, it's about so much more than football. And I was glad I could kind of use this show to rewatch it. I hadn't seen it in years. So uh, what are your general thoughts? Because this is your first time. Yeah, I had, you know, anybody who's followed our shows for some time now knows what my likes and your likes are. They can kind of gauge what we're going to be into. And Football documentaries, very much not in my wheelhouse. Uh, <laughs> never been a sports guy, never really understood the fervor of American football. Uh, always kind of thought, you know, it was kind of pointless. And I'm sorry if we lose viewership because of that. <laughs> but uh, there's one thing I can get behind. It's an honest film about real people dealing with real struggles and real dreams. And that's very much what undefeated is about. Like the title has nothing to do with their score. Like they lost a couple games. They're not undefeated, but in their soul, nothing can stop them. That's what this means. And I, I love that. There's a power in this movie that drew me in. And, you know, towards the end, you know, you feel, I felt my heart skipping during the playoff game. I was like, fuck, are they going to do this? Like I, you feel that yeah, you get sucked yeah. into it. You're like, this is like, this, you know, this is real life. This is real stakes. And documentaries have that power. And, you know, through you and this show, I've been very much thrown into the deep end on documentaries and I'm all in now. I'm, I want to see everything. And I am very grateful for that. So thank you. And, um, uh, as I said before we recorded, I'm, I'm no longer going to doubt your selections on anything you got going forward on this show because you know what you're doing, clearly. <laughs> uh, so thanks for this. This was a good choice. Uh, you're welcome. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, the wor- it's the work that does it right. Documentaries are, is, it's the most watched genre on my letterbox. I've seen, I don't know, 300 something documentaries. I love them so much. Uh, in particular sports documentaries, because it can, I, I love sports, you know, I'm really excited for the Super Bowl. We're recording this on Friday night. So it's two days before the Super Bowl, the Rams and the Bengals will be playing each other. I will be, I will be at work during the game, but I will definitely be taking my, my, I will be taking my breaks and my lunch during that, <laughs> during, during that game. Uh, that's at 5.30 uh, PM here in Texas. So I, I'm, I'm very excited to to watch that. I've, been following this scene really closely and i won my fantasy football league this year which was cool uh i haven't haven't played fantasy in a long time so that was fun um sports are a way of looking at so many things you know it's just a vehicle where you can kind of kind of look at what it's like to just be a person you know and what it what it means to be kind of a part of something to work together with other people um and of course, with this one, they really, really follow the coach and what it means. And at that, a volunteer coach, a guy who's not getting paid to do what he's doing. Uh, Bill Courtney, uh, what a legend. And watching someone lead like that without really a, um, a, 
physical reward. Uh, you know, there, there's no money involved. Uh, watching him just do it to try to, to try to help these kids is 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 beautiful. You know, and I I can think of many sports documentaries where the sport is a vehicle, but really you're learning so much more about what it's like to be a person in different different groups and different parts of society. And I I love that about them. I I love documentaries, and it and it requires. You know, for for undefeated, you know, there's there's um, over 500 hours of footage, and they have to whittle that down into two hours, right? So it's it, it requires this really incredible um, knack for filmmaking, for figuring out what's going to work, what's going to create the best storyline, what's going to be the best narrative, what's going to kind of you know get people, like you said, get get their hearts just pounding towards the end of it. Uh, and with undefeated, there's like I can point out three. There's three times when I watched it last night that I, I just started bawling. I just started crying. And that's, that's, that's what documentaries can do because you're dealing with real life, you know? And this is only the second documentary we've done. We did Mining the Gap, right? And that one, that one's in a fucking place of its own in my mind. Uh, one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life. And I really wish it would have won the Oscar, but I'm glad we got to do it on the show because it was nominated. Undefeated is a winner, you know. This is our first winning documentary on the show. We're going to do more. It's such an awesome category that allows you to watch these vastly different things, you know. Within this group, this group, we're going to talk about it later at the 84th Academy Awards. There's there's completely different stories, right? And they're all they're all powerful. They all have their own thing to say. So I'm really excited to talk about that. Um, that's the only category we'll really go over later on, and we'll give our own awards out to. Uh, undefeated but i wanted to do something that was kind of cool for like shout out some documentaries i wanted to do top five documentaries now for me i'm doing top five sports related documentaries and for you you're doing top five filmmaking related documentaries correct yeah that's correct with both of our you know personal wheelhouses Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sports are very much like my initial passion as a child. I was obsessed with, I've been obsessed with basketball my whole life, really. Uh, As I got into my early teen years uh, and into now, I'm obsessed with, with soccer, the real football. Um, uh, I I love baseball, love hockey. I I love it all. You know, it's, I love, I love non-scripted just fucking action where you literally have no idea what's going to happen. Like just tonight, there was this game I was watching uh, the Boston Celtics and the Denver Nuggets. And it was this up and down back and forth basketball game that the score kept changing and teams kept taking the lead. And it was really cool. And the Celtics who were down most of the game ended up winning by six tonight. And I was just like, that was fun as shit. You know, it was so entertaining. And that's, that's one of my favorite things in the world is to just kind of sit back and escape reality with, with sports and watching these guys who are just masters of their craft Uh, much like, much like filmmaking, when you watch a good film and you know it's good, you know it's great, deep down in your heart, you're like, I'm watching masters at work here. Whether it's the director, the writer, the actors, you know, the cinematographer, you know, that's really cool. We both kind of can highlight five different ones that revolve around that. So I'll let you start. You know, these are going to be vastly different um, um, top fives, which is cool. I think we're going to be able to shout out a lot of different things. So I'll let you start with your number five. Sure. Um... So these are five film. I haven't seen a lot of documentaries total. I've seen 29. Um, so still pretty fresh on this, yeah. on this whole thing. 
but I do have five very good movies about movies. Uh, number five is a Netflix original called The Last Blockbuster. Nice, nice. This is, uh, well, obviously about The Last Blockbuster. Uh, it tells the story of the fall of the mighty movie rental titan that was Blockbuster at the hands of the red envelope that was Netflix and how there's one franchise left in the world and it's in some small town in the Northwest, I think maybe the Midwest and they're holding on to this. They have been for years and it's become a Mecca of film fans of people who are like, I remember blockbuster. They go to this place, they get to take pictures at the last blockbuster. They, the people who run it, uh, go to Walmart every week and buy out the new releases and rent them to this town. And they're still thriving. They got their contract renewed. And it's just like the last piece of movie rental history still living out there. And it's, it's fascinating to see the evolution of film in the home and how far we've come from just accepting, you know, a $60 late fee on fucking Beverly Hills cop. And just now, you know, getting anything you want at your fingertips. And, and not that long and not that uh, it's been pretty uh, quick too. like, you know, almost only like 10 years that we've gone from here to there. It's pretty mm. remarkable. Uh, so definitely a, a must see for any film buff who wants to see kind of where we've come from. Yeah, God, I love that. I still remember just how special it was to go to Blockbuster, right? How... <laughs> You know, my mom would be like, pick out, you can pick out two things. You know, I would pick out a movie and, and a video game. You know, that was always my kind of, I just picked one of each. And that was what I did for the week, <laughs> you know? Yep. And yep. when you knew, when you, you knew you liked something a lot, when you, I remember, I remember when Jack and Daxter came out and I, I got that like fucking nine weeks in a row, right? I was just like, well, now I just want to fucking beat the game, right? You know, it's like, I probably should have just bought it. Uh, and eventually we did. Eventually, my my older brother uh, he 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 bought that that game and we played the shit out of it. Uh, but that would happen with movies too, right? You'd find a movie that you liked and you'd you'd revisit it that way. You'd go back like, oh, I have my chance to get whatever again. And there's something about there's something in the air in Blockbuster that I just I I fucking loved and I miss because it was. You know, when you when you have the streaming services that, are, that rule everything now, you can just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll, and you're you're desensitized to how many titles mm. you're going through. There, you had to pick something. That's what you had. That's what you had. It's what you chose. Well, that's a big thing that comes up in the doc is the atmosphere of a blockbuster. Yeah, the smell of the you know popcorn buckets and the bag of cotton candy and the blue carpet. Yes. It just it's such a specific vibe that is lost forever except at this one place <laughs> and it's yeah. it's so crazy um i want to i want to go there i want to take a you know take a trip go check out the last blockbuster there's a there's an appeal to this that i totally get yeah i would i would go with you for sure i think that would be a really fun random trip um the the blockbuster that i went to growing up was uh on on high on 281 and san antonio 281 in evans which is right next to where i work now so every day, I'm no, I'm not kidding. Every single day, I drive past. Now it's an urgent care building that it was is an urgent care. I drive past there every day. And I just I go back to when I was six, seven, eight years old, and all these years, of, I had these weird existential moments every time I go to work where I'm like, wow, 
now I'm driving to work because this is what I got to do to, you know, just fucking survive or whatever. But there was a time when going down that road, going down Evans and turning right into Blockbuster was like heaven to me. <laughs> and, and that's just, that's one of those weird things, you know, I would, I would go with you, man. Let's go to the fucking last Blockbuster. Fuck it. When I first moved here, I remember that Blockbuster. It was still a Blockbuster when I first got here. And I remember like that was right when it was starting to crumble. And yeah. I tried to go there because they were having like an everything must go sale and I wanted to buy a bunch of movies, but I forgot and I missed my window. I, I definitely, I definitely went to that. I have a lot of random, random movies that are, that still have that kind of like weird, uh, the case is kind of, kind of grainy almost where it's not, yeah. it's not like, yeah. I, uh, one of the movies that I remember buying vividly, I have, uh, 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 Body of Lies, Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, that's that's a movie that I remember buying there, like just on a whim, like why not? I got I got Orange County, which is one of my favorite random two thousands comedies. I got that at, uh, during during that sale. But yeah, everything it was just in buckets, and you just picked out fucking five of them for ten dollars. You know, that's just how that's what it was. Oh man, miss those days for sure. That and then the, and then Hollywood Video, those two I, I went to a lot as a kid and. I miss them a lot. I miss that, like you said, that atmosphere is intoxicating. Great pick, man. Good pick. Thanks. Uh, my, my number five. Uh, again, these are all these are all sports related. But my number five is Lenny Cook, directed by the Safety Brothers, a basketball documentary about a phenom named Lenny Cook, who was the number one basketball recruit. Uh, in his his high school class when he was a senior and it's a the the documentary is about how he was just this larger than life freak of nature basketball player who who just had the wrong people i i still believe this to this day um because i remember i remember hearing about him as a kid because he he was a senior in high school in 2002 uh so this is like right before lebron was the next guy and before LeBron, it was supposed to be Lenny Cook. It was supposed to be this guy. You know, it was supposed to be this guy's six foot seven, can kind of do everything on the basketball court. He's this crazy big personality. Um, and it's about how he didn't have the right people in his corner. He didn't have the right people kind of guiding him uh, and didn't have, didn't have the best discipline himself. So there was no one there kind of saying, hey, man, like you need to kind of, you need to kind of buck up and man up and learn how to learn how to, you know, operate in this world of sports and earning money and being on your own and, and these things. And, and I think uh, ultimately that's why he fell so fast and ended up not, not doing anything. He played on a, he played on the Boston Celtics summer league team actually against LeBron James, the, the year LeBron got drafted, but never really made an NBA roster, never really got to fulfill uh, his dreams of becoming a, becoming a, a pro athlete. And the documentary is, is very sad. It's, it's filmed incredibly, as you'd expect, from the Safdie brothers who have gone on to make, you know, good time and uncut gems. These guys are just these mastermind filmmakers at this point. But this documentary, you know, I, is one of my favorite things they've done. Uh, and it's really cool to see their passion for basketball and their passion for specifically a guy who's from New York and plays in New York uh, in high school and, you know, dominated that dominated that northeast area uh as as far as high school basketball goes and uh you know there's footage of him later on you know and he's gained a bunch of weight and 
is just kind of working a normal job. And there's one scene that's real sad where he's, uh, it's his, it's his birthday and he's hanging out with some of his buddies, just kind of like at a little barbecue type thing. And then they're, they're, you know, playing music and smoking weed and dancing and stuff and just kind of fucking around. And, and then at the end of the night, he's on his couch and he's definitely, he's gained a significant amount of weight since his high school days. And he's watching NBA highlights. He's watching uh, these guys play specifically LeBron James. And he's like, you know, that, 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 that should have been me type thing. And it's one of those fall from grace stories that just kind of, kind of pulverizes you, you know? And if you, if you really like basketball, you know, he's a fascinating guy to learn about because there's, this has happened to, to plenty of players that they don't pan out because they don't have the right people in their corner rooting for them, cheering for them. Instead, they're just kind of sucking from them. You know, they're like, once they make some money, they just fucking jump on and want to, you want to suck the life out of them. And that happened to Lenny Cook and the Safety brothers captured it beautifully. Uh, I watched this on Criterion maybe a year ago, two years ago. I'm not sure. And I don't think it's on anything at the moment, but it's worth kind of seeking out and, checking out for yourself. Uh, you know, if anything, it's kind of a cool thing to add to the Safety brothers experience, right? These guys who are going to be around for a while. Yeah. I think I remember back in the day when we did a bonus on uncut gems, I think I remember you telling me about this. I think you brought it up then. Uh, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. That sounds just like a bummer of a story. A guy who almost had it. That's those are the, those are the saddest stories. Not people who've tried and failed, but people who like, just mate, you know, we're, we're almost there. It's, it's a bummer, but, uh, I'm sure it's worth checking out. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And, and you don't know what's going to happen when you're making a documentary. You, you, that's one of the beautiful things about it. It's not written. You don't know exactly what's going to happen with undefeated. You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know that they're going to go Oh, and one, and then they're going to win nine games in a row and make the playoffs. You don't know that. So while it's unfolding, it's like this exhilarating experience of, oh my God, I really don't know what's going to happen next. And neither did the filmmakers. And that's, that's crazy to think about, you know, and with Lenny Cook, you can tell the Safties are like, fuck, you know, like, <laughs> dude, come on, man, like get your shit together. And, but they're, they're just, they're just there to film, you know, they're just there to make a movie and it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. I think you would like it a lot. It's only an hour and a half. It's a real quick one. They get straight to the point, you know, and there's a few shots that in, in that, in that, that film that are just bonkers. Good. So um, yeah, Lenny cook. That is such a crazy idea though, that these guys do set out to make a movie, but there's zero guarantee that they're going to get the movie that they envision. It's yeah. a complete yeah. shot in the dark. And I can't imagine having that level of confidence and commitment to something that I don't even know is going to pan out. Like yeah. they could yeah. just get nothing. Or they could get everything. It's entirely up to a flip of the coin. It's wild. Yeah, that's. I think that's why true crime uh, documentaries are the most fascinating to to the general public. The most they're the most watched uh, documentaries are those true crime ones. And you know, when you do something like uh, making a murderer, right? Yeah. Like, oh my God, these things keep these things keep happening to this guy. He keeps getting fucked over and over. But we don't, we don't, we don't necessarily know that the filmmakers didn't know that they were like, oh, here's this thing that kind of sucks. 
and then more things happen that suck <laughs> and you just you just kind of stacks the stuff on on top of each other and then you have this amazing product that people can't take their eyes off of and you forget you're watching real life stuff you're watching real people struggle and it's yeah it's a it's a wild thing to really wrap your head around because you're so used to to movies and tv shows that are scripted and they're built to do this to you they're built to play with your emotions documentaries are a whole different beast yeah and i'm thinking I'm only just now, just now starting to, to understand that beast. Um, my number four is a doc I watched the first time last week, and it was so captivating, I wanted it on my list. Um, it's a Shudder original. Boris Karloff, the man behind the monster. Mm, nice. It's the story of Boris Karloff, one of the most recognizable names in film history, the original Frankenstein's monster, and a true titan of the industry in ways I did not know. I didn't realize how instrumental he was to helping form the uh, Screen Actors Guild in the 30s with Bela Lugosi. They were instrumental in the beginnings of that. Um, Karloff came from a, you know, an interesting place. He was doing kind of bit parts on various low-budget crime thrillers playing like the heavy and then some dude who was making Frankenstein, one of the, one of the producers saw him in the commissary and was like, that guy's got a weird looking face. And they hired him as Frankenstein's monster. And he wasn't even credited on the movie. He wasn't invited to the, to the premiere. He was just some guy. And then from there, he kept getting work based off of Frankenstein and turned it into a very lucrative, long career that lasted 30 years. And I'd never heard about his post Frankenstein life. I always just assumed it was Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and then he disappeared. But no. It was a very long career where he worked with Vincent Price and Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr. and all sorts of people. And he kind of changed what it meant to be a horror performer in Hollywood. Like he, back in the 30s and 40s, horror was super lowbrow. It was cheap to make. They didn't really, they cared about the money it made, but no one was trying to put any prestige on it. But Karloff's performances carried that prestige. People recognized his performances as something to pay attention to something to last. And here we are, you know, it's, it's a very cool documentary. Uh, it was made a few years ago. It's got interviews from Dick Miller, Christopher Plummer, like right before they died. Uh, Jeez. I know it was, I was blown away and it's, it's really cool to hear how powerful his legacy is. Even today, his daughter holds conventions for him and like fans like send her stuff all the time. She's grateful. Like just because of, her father. Uh, so definitely one worth checking out if you want to see a little bit of t- a little bit of a uh, classic Hollywood and you know, how horror has always been there. Mm. How horror has always been there. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a quote. Uh, great, great call. I have not seen that. So I'm very interested. Shutter always has really cool documentaries that they're trying to, trying to push. That's, that's a good shout, man. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely keep my eye out for that one. That's a, that's a good pick. And you said you just watched that a week ago. Yeah. Caleb watched it, said it was really good. And I was like, I had some time. So I'm like, I know we were doing a documentary thing. So I'm like, ah, fuck it. Let's check this out. And it was fantastic. That's cool. And you ended up adding it on your list. That's awesome. You didn't just like it. You loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's awesome, man. Uh, My, my number four is a, uh, 2010 HBO documentary, HBO sport film is what they call it. <laughs> <laughs> it's called a uh, magic and bird, a courtship of rivals. Uh, magic Johnson, Larry bird, two of the greatest 
athletes to ever to ever kind of walk walk the earth um and they had this you know built-in uh built-in rivalry since they were in college they played each other uh in the 19 let me see if i can get all my years right here uh 1979 they play each other in the uh ncaa championship game michigan state versus indiana state magic johnson's at michigan state uh very very much a you know a a team full of mostly black players and then larry bird at indiana state mostly a team of white players and it was this they didn't they didn't plan it it was just the narrative that people wanted to build in the late 70s and going to the 80s of we have this black superstar and this white superstar they're both about the same height they both are incredible creators for their teams and they both are clearly the best player on their teams and so this rivalry was built in for them before they even got to the nba then they get to the nba they're drafted the same year and they have this this run in the eighties where we've never really seen anything like it since, uh, and probably never will where two guys just go toe to toe the whole time. Uh, in 1980, magic Johnson's Los Angeles Lakers won the championship in 1981, Larry birds, Boston Celtics won the championship. Then we go back 1982 to the Lakers. And there's a little break in 1983 where the Philadelphia 76ers swooped in and won a championship. And then from there on, it's, it's these two teams going head to head. The Boston Celtics win in 1984, the Lakers 1985, Celtics 1986, Lakers 87 and 88. And then, so it's just those two teams led by these two guys going at each other constantly, playing in the NBA finals against each other in commercials together for Converse, just, just the two faces of the league. Before Michael Jordan got there and became Michael Jordan, it was these two guys. And in this documentary, Brian Gumbel, one, uh, one of my favorite quotes from any documentary is he says, people want to say that Michael Jordan saved basketball. That's bullshit. Magic Johnson and Larry Bird saved basketball. I love that so much because I think people forget about everything pre-Michael Jordan. I think people are just enamored by the celebrity, enamored by the you know, narrative that MJ is the greatest. There's no question about it. These two guys were fucking incredible players, incredible players. And Jordan had to go through them to become who he was, you know, and this documentary is so cool. It's a swift hour and a half. And uh, just like Lenny Cook, this one made me cry. There's one specific scene uh, later on in the documentary. Uh, of course, if you know much about Magic Johnson, you know that he uh, was diagnosed with AIDS in the early nineties. And uh, you know, could not, could not play anymore. Um, that's a whole, there's a whole other documentary called the announcement about magic Johnson that an ESPN did. And it's about him announcing that he had AIDS. And that's a great documentary as well. Not on my list, but a really good documentary as well. But this magic and bird one is really cool because the day that magic announced that he, you know, had AIDS and he's going to step away from basketball because at this time, you know, it, it's a completely different beast than it is now. Right. Uh, players were scared to go against him type thing. They were like, oh, I don't want to get AIDS. You know, I don't want to get AIDS from playing against him. They didn't realize that you had to get blood on blood. You know, it had to be the specific thing. And so he couldn't play anymore. And there's a game. Uh, the Boston Celtics are playing against the Atlanta Hawks. And Larry Bird comes out of the tunnel to play this game. And he looks like he does not want any part of it. Because that's his, that's, that's his, 
that's his muse. They, they both fed off each other. They were like, we're both so good. And we push each other so much that I, I need this guy. I need this guy here. Otherwise, what am I doing? You know, I'm not going against anything if it's not against him. And so he, he comes out and, you know, he doesn't look right. He was starting to have some lower back problems where it was making him like move a little slower. But Larry Bird does something really cool in that game that I think is one of my favorite sports moments ever. Magic Johnson, if you know about him, he's, he was a very flashy player, liked to throw the ball all kinds of ways. He, he would do these no-look passes that were really famous, or he'd throw it behind his back to other teammates. And Larry Bird was, was flashy, but not as much as Magic. You know, nobody has ever been as wild as Magic on the court. Uh, his, name, his name's Irvin Johnson, but people called him Magic because that's the kind of shit he did. You know, it, it was like Magic on the court. Larry Bird, in the middle of the game, he's at half court. There's, it's not necessary at all, but it was a shout out to magic. And he knew it was a shout out to magic at half court. He throws this wild behind the back pass to one of his teammates and his teammate makes a layup. And he just start. he just like pointed up, like that was, that was for my buddy. That was for my boy. That was for, that was for magic. And I just, when I first watched this, I was 15 because I watched it live on HBO because I was fucking amped for it. I just started bawling. I was like, Oh my God, I love Larry Bird. <laughs> this guy's, this guy's so awesome, you know, and the documentary covers all that stuff. It covers how they both kind of ended and how the NBA was never the same without them. Uh, and it covers their friendship too, because when you're that you're, you're, you're going at each other that often, there's going to be this respect involved. And when they filmed a commercial for Converse, they did it at Larry Bird's house. Larry Bird lived on this, this like really interesting piece of land in Indiana uh, during the off seasons uh, with his mom. And he would, his routine was he would, he would, you know, wake up, do like a little workout. He would mow the lawn. This is Larry Bird, a guy who doesn't need to be mowing the lawn. He would mow the lawn and then he would go outside on this out, outdoor court and he would shoot for hours, you know, and magic came over to that house to do a commercial for Converse because they both wore those shoes. And Bird was like, well, we're going to do this commercial or whatever, but you're not going to interrupt my, my routine of what I do. You can, you can film around me when I have downtime. That's when I'll tell you I'm ready to film for the commercial. And Magic was like, well, let's play one-on-one. You know, so they, they have this amazing game of one-on-one at Larry Bird's house in Indiana with his mom making them food, making them lunch. And they're playing on this outdoor court in the middle of the country, you know, going head to head. And that's when the, that's when the friendship and the respect really started of like, Oh my God, you're not just an amazing player. You're an amazing person, amazing man. And I love that so much when two, two giants like need each other, need each other to keep going, to keep pushing each other, to keep going to, you know, keep staying on top of one another, like one up, one up, one up, you know, ultimately magic got more championships. Uh, He got five and he got five, most valuable player awards. Larry Bird got three championships and three most valuable player awards. They're pretty close. And the eighties is theirs. You know, they own eighties basketball and this documentary just kind of covers all that stuff in a short amount of time. HBO shout out to them. Uh, It was directed by Ezra Edelman. And you'll probably recognize that name because that's the guy who basically ran the documentary OJ made in America. So Ezra Edelman went on to do some amazing things and is a, a documentary giant at this point. Um, I would have OJ made America on my list if it wasn't fucking nine parts and 45 hours. Uh, 
but you know, we wanted to stick to, you know, feature length the films, you know, so that one did not make it, but God, Ezra Elliman has, has contributed some amazing things to the documentary community. Yeah. I, I may not know a lot about basketball, but I know Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. I know who they are. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, it's cool that they, you know, to kind of see the evolution of a rivalry that pushed them both to become better players. That's, that's always cool to have somebody that you kind of like, you know, like you need that grudge to keep, to stay alive. Yeah. And to see that blossom into a friendship is really cool. Like, you know, I, you couldn't make that shit up if you tried. No, for sure. And uh, Larry Bird says at one point, you know, he's like, look, like I would be, I'd be laying in bed at, you know, one in the morning and I, w- I couldn't sleep because I'd be thinking magic's probably out there shooting. <laughs> They're just these, these fucking freaks, you know? And I think, I think one of the things that you, you, you know, what you were just speaking about, why you would really like this documentary is because you can kind of put that in any art, you know, any art form, there's always someone working harder. Always, you know, whether it's a writer or a filmmaker or a basketball player, football player, whatever it is, a musician, there's always someone out there who's pushing the limits. And if you're not doing the same, you're going to fall behind. Yeah. I mean, you know, you see that kind of rivalry in filmmaking all the time. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. Like, I like to think, you know, I know it's a friendship, but I'm pretty sure, you know, Lucas and Spielberg were just going at one another, trying to be better. And, you know, I just, I, I love that. And it's a relationship anybody can kind of understand. We, we've all had those rivals where we're like, I'm not doing good if he's not doing worse. We, mm. we always have, there's somebody in our lives where we felt that, maybe not now, but at some point. And uh, yeah, that's relatable as hell. And you need that relatability, I think, in some cases to fully immerse yourself, especially if you're like me, who doesn't have a sports background or really like inter- is interested that much by that. But, but I could get interested in that kind of story, a rivalry turned friendship, a relationship like that. I can, I can relate to that. I can get invested in that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's why I connect with them too so much. And I've gone on to read, read books about them. You know, Jackie McMullen wrote a great book. She's an amazing writer, wrote a great book about kind of the eighties and just this golden era, you know, it's called when the game was ours and it's just this beautiful book about those two guys and kind of those two teams and how good they were. It's just a really cool era to, to learn about the game. The game was completely different at that time. Larry bird was fucking punching people in the face in the middle of games and would go on to keep playing. If you do that now you're suspended for like the rest of the season. So it's just a completely different beast uh, during the eighties. Jesus. Yeah. Oh yeah. Larry bird was nasty. He was a nasty motherfucker and, and, and had, you know, he, he, he fancied himself a drink every now and again. So he would, he would just drink a ton of beer and, you know, just fucking go back, go, go outside the next day and work it off and just fucking shoot over and over. So <laughs> he's a fascinating dude. <laughs> I just, I keep thinking of that space jam scene where they're playing golf and Bill Murray's like, Larry's not white. Larry's clear. <laughs> yes, he is. He is. He's, he's, he's Larry. You can't call him anything. He's fucking Larry bird. He was the man. <laughs> right on. Um, my number three takes us to one of the most underrated character actors who ever lived, a man who was only in five movies, but five incredible culturally relevant best picture nominated films. The doc is I Knew It Was You, 
rediscovering John Cazale. Mm, good pick. For those of you who don't know, John Cazale, most famous for playing Fredo Corleone in the first two Godfather films, was also in The Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter before he died of cancer in his mid-30s. Yeah. Uh, it's a damn shame. But this doc tells the story of his short-lived career and all the people he interacted with. We get little, you know, Al Pacino talks about him. He was um, the love of Meryl Streep's life. They were together uh, before he died. She gets very candid about their time together. And it's a very powerful doc that showcases a, a legend who did so much in such a short amount of time that we're still talking about him today. And it just makes you wonder, like, you know, what, what else would he gone on to do had he not, unfortunately, passed from cancer? Uh, but yeah, John Cazale, one of the most powerful character actors of the 70s. And this is a very, it's only like an hour 10. It's a very quick doc but it is a powerful watch. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. Um, I've got the DVD, but I urge you to try to find a copy. It's a fantastic movie. Yeah. Uh, talk about a guy who's up for best seventies run uh, out of anybody, you know, and had his hand in so many amazing pieces of cinema. And he's one of those guys that you can kind of, uh, you can kind of you can kind of judge what someone knows or what someone cares about, you know, filmmaking or uh, especially seventies film, if they know and are connected to him, you know, because uh, he he was involved with the best stuff and one of the best Godfather characters in the whole trilogy, you know, the the whole oh. the whole franchise, the whole trilogy. He's just one of the best, dude. His the scene where he's you know yelling at Mike, you know, I was the older brother and I was passed over, like. That is one of the most powerful scenes in the franchise and that he wasn't up for supporting actor is a crime to this day. He was amazing as Fredo, just this fall from grace, you know, the little like kind of the joke of the family, but still, you know, wanting to be respected and going about it a horrible way. It's, it's maybe the most important arc of the franchise. I, I, I think so. I think it's the one that is like, you, it's universal. We all understand that, you know, we might not understand what it's like to be in the mob or be in the mafia or anything like that, but you understand those family dynamics and those, di- those dynamics of wanting to be loved, wanting to be cared for. And uh, gosh, some of those scenes that he's in, you know, and his, you know, his inevitable end ending is just one of the, one of the saddest fucking things I've ever watched in my life. So yeah, great, great pick, man. Uh, I, I love that. I, I had a feeling that was going to show up on, on this list just because I know you love that guy so much. Yeah. It's such a great story. He was such a cool guy and just taken from us so goddamn quick, but left his mark. By God, did he leave his mark? Uh, yeah. Enough said. Rest in peace, John Cazale. Hell yeah, man. Ah, another, another guy we're going to have to say rest in peace to. Um, my number three is the documentary from 2019. Uh, Diego Maradona, who passed away not that long ago. Um, now, this is a documentary directed by uh, one of the masters of the, the craft of the medium, uh, Asif Kapalia. He directed Senna in uh, 2010. Uh, Amy, the amazing Amy Winehouse documentary from 2013. Uh, he did some stuff in the 2000s in particular. The Warrior from 2001 is amazing. But my my favorite thing he's done is is, is Diego Maradona from just just about three years ago now. Uh, Jesus Christ, you know Diego Maradona is a 
you know, he could, he could be looked at as the greatest uh, soccer player to ever live. Some people would say that most talented, maybe had this crazy, crazy, huge ego uh, messed around with drugs a lot. Um, but just out of, out of this world when he was on, he was, he was ready to go. He, he was, there's not very many guys you can, you know, compare him with. Uh, he, his best stuff was in the eighties. He was playing for the uh, Italian club, Napoli. Uh, Napoli was this fucking t- rundown type of club that didn't really know where it was going. And he was like, fuck it. I want to go there and raise them up to be, to be giants. And to this day, Napoli is still one of the giants of Italian football. Uh, they, they're still very good, have very good players. Um, this year they're struggling a little bit, but, but they're, they're, they're still very good side, very good, very good team. And it's kind of because of him that he created this whole club that is now very respected. And when you have a guy like that, that you can always look to, you know, Diego Maradona, this Argentinian, just freak of nature who could do anything on the soccer field. Uh, it's, it's really cool to watch. It's really cool to watch people's people's adoration towards him. He's he was like a god. He was like a god to these Italian people. Uh, it was it was like you know oh we finally have our Jesus. We finally have our person to, to rally behind, and he's going to he's going to save us. He's going to save our save our club. We're going to be the greatest ever. Um, he has some of the most fascinating uh, international football moments. Uh, Specifically, there's one, uh, the hand of God, where it's called the hand of God, where he was going in for a header and he jumped up and the ball clearly hit his hand and the ball went in for a goal and the ref didn't see it, didn't call it. And he just started celebrating, you know, and Mm. this is this is this is back when there wasn't instant replay. There wasn't something that you could just go back to and be like, oh, no, no, that's not a goal. He, He it was a handball. It happens. And so now it's this legendary moment, this legendary World Cup moment where. You know, you just, you just got to fucking roll with it. Maradona rolled with it. <laughs> uh, but for that to be the thing, I think a lot of people will kind of, you know, remember him for his angst and remember him for, for those kinds of things. Uh, this documentary definitely is very fair in the fact that it points out the, the flaws that he had as a player, the flaws that he had as a person mostly. But man, it highlights some of his moments that where he is just shredding players moving up the field like it's nothing and it's so fun to watch this was a very highly anticipated documentary for soccer fans because they compiled over 500 hours of unseen footage of of him of him behind closed doors of him at you know with his family and this and that and uh it's it's a it's a wild ride it's a long one it's a little over two hours and i i've seen it multiple times now because it's just it's just freakishly good uh, I highly, highly recommend it. I think it's, I, I love the stuff I have on this, the, on this list, but I think Diego Maradona is the one that will speak to kind of everybody, uh, no matter what, what, what you're a fan of, if you, if you even care about soccer at all, you, you just, you learn a shit ton in that two hours and it packs a punch, man. You know, uh, there's stuff about his son that happens later on in the, in the documentary and, um, that that's just just tugs at the heartstrings, you know, and really makes you kind of contemplate what you think about him and what you think about the player and the person. And that's like one of the best things a documentary can do. Um, some of the footage is crazy. Is you know, I I love 
I love sports footage from, you know, cause you're used to seeing it one way and you're used to seeing it kind of like, wow, look at this compared to HD, right. You know, compared to what we have now, especially with sports, but some of the footage that they're able to capture where it's, it's so raw. And while it has a little bit of that grain that we love from the seventies and eighties, it it's so fucking real and so vibrant. And I, I, that's again, one of the best things a doc can do is kind of bring those things to light and put them together in a, a you know, coherent two hour story. So yeah, Diego Maradona, excellent stuff. Uh, still on HBO should be on HBO max. Cause it's, it's one of their things. Uh, highly, highly recommend it. Yeah. Soccer is, uh, my family does, we, we do watch the world cup. That's about the only big sports thing we, we get involved in because we've got a lot of different culture in our family. Uh, we root for Peru. We, we root for Colombia. We root for Germany. It's, it's, you know, our, our family's a hodgepodge and you get into it. You know, it's cool to see countries take on one another in a game that, you know, makes sense to me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I like, you know, spotlighting players like that, that hand of God thing. That's fascinating. Dude. That, yeah, God, that, that's got to be a point of contention, I imagine. Oh yeah, some people, some people do not do not like him. Do not like what he, what he, what how he carried himself on the field, and specifically stuff like that. Um, and and it's against it's against England, and England created the sport. You know, they created football. A lot of people say that England created football, and South America adopted it and perfected it. Because Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, those countries are have always been Uruguay. They've always been masters at playing playing the game and playing it fast and being really, really snippy, you know, being really aggressive and in your face. And so Argentina going against England in the 80s is like this just ultimate, <laughs> ultimate fucking showdown of the old versus the new. And the fact that he did that against England, you know, if you if you just Google the pictures of it, it is such a crazy picture of him with his hand up you know and the, the goalkeeper's right fucking there you know he's like oh, i'm about to get it and he fucking just kind of punches it and it goes in and you're like oh my god <laughs> it's so crazy that's bonkers wow what a what a weird piece of legacy to have uh like you know memorable but also like super fucking dodgy that's that's fascinating yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's cool, man. I definitely uh, just look it up. Uh, it's it's a 1986 World Cup, Argentina versus England. Uh, the the coolest part of of that particular game is that Diego Maradona scored probably his greatest goal ever, and then he has that goal. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, dude, it's it's amazing. You would you would love it. There's like a four minute video of both goals on YouTube where you can kind of see the breakdown of. Oh my God, this guy shredded England, just shredded them. And they looked like idiots. They looked like clowns because he's bouncing off all of them, dribbling around them and bang. And then he has this, this, this other goal that just is a bad taste in people's mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Speaking of bad tastes, my, my number two is uh, another recent watch that, uh, if you follow the Beyond the Bad podcast, another show we do here, uh, you'll know that we recently, in the past couple of weeks, covered uh, the 1996 disaster, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Mm. Well, there is a documentary that details that entire 
troubled production that has a story that is a million times more fascinating than what the film ended up becoming. Uh, this doc is called Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. And um, it's streaming on Shudder and Tubi right now. And it is an absolutely insane story of, it, it plays with the idea that, you know, sometimes our dreams don't work out. Sometimes you make it into Hollywood and you're just like obliterated by the greed and the work ethic of everybody. And just this idea that you don't matter as much as the project does. Richard Stanley uh, had been developing the Island of Dr. Moreau for four years before he got the green light by a new line to make a film within four days of production. It was taken away from him. Mm. He couldn't handle a cast that included a bloated, disinterested Marlon Brando and a super sadistic, angry Val Kilmer who were just butting heads the whole time to see who was going to be top dog of this shit show. And Richard Stanley was a pretty novice filmmaker who had a nervous breakdown trying to make this happen. New Line pulled him off the project, put on John Frankenheimer, who's basically this drill sergeant asshole. And the whole production just turned into a nightmare. It like the budget uh, went through the roof. Production went another like six, seven months longer than it was supposed to. Richard Stanley never got on the plane back to LA, disappeared in Australia until he was found again near the set, like just living in a tent. It's the craziest fucking story. <laughs> and it is so brilliant and fascinating to see just everything that could have gone wrong went horrifically wrong with this production. And by the end of it, everyone was just happy to be alive. <laughs> like they're just happy. They got out of serious emotional trauma and some people didn't, some people never really recovered from this. Richard Stanley, for instance, never made anything of note like again until like 2019 with uh, color out of space, which was his big comeback. And then he got accused of sexual assault and now he's gone. So mm. just, I, it's a wild story. You don't have to watch the Island of Dr. Moreau to appreciate this. In fact, I recommend you don't, <laughs> but this doc is fascinating and really weird and cool. And, uh, I like to see some stories that kind of end on a negative note of like, you know what? Sometimes it doesn't work out. <laughs> Sometimes there is no fairy tale ending. Sometimes shit just goes wrong. Jesus, especially with filmmaking, right? You know, you just, you have these, all these egos, egos at once. Gosh, I need to see this. I remember, uh, you know, obviously very recently listening to, to that episode and just kind of hearing you guys, you guys kind of shit talk it was really funny but i also was very intrigued by like you said not only the movie and what it, what it is you know the, the cast and whatnot but this this specifically this documentary so i i will do my best to check this out as soon as i can yeah this doc became crucial to that episode most of that episode ended up being us kind of uh going through the documentary and talking about some of the highlights yeah and there's one exchange i want to bring up here because it's just so goddamn funny <laughs> um, it was Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando's first and only conversation together where Val being this young upstart thinking he's hot shit wants to impress who you know many consider to be the greatest actor of all time just sitting over there in a moo moo and Val tells the guy tells Marlon Brando like hey have you have you explored the area it's a beautiful country have you have you been to the reef and Brando just looks at him and goes the reef 
I've got a reef. <laughs> I've got reefs coming out of my ass. <laughs> and Val didn't pursue the conversation further. That's all they yeah. said to each other the whole production. <laughs> okay, you goddamn weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Like from the get go, Marlon Brando was like, oh, I don't like that guy. Because Brando, while difficult, was still cordial with everybody, and he treated the ca- the crew pretty reasonably. Kilmer was just trying to, you know, be top dog, and he was attacking everybody. He burned a dude with a cigarette. Like he's a fucking lunatic. <laughs> yeah, and you wonder why he fell, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus, there you go. Uh, what's that on? Um, it's on Tubi, but if you want it without ads, it is on Shutter. Okay. Yeah. Figured Shutter had it. Yeah. All right. There you go. I got, I got Shutter. I can, I can make that happen. You know, yeah. I very, very, very keen on watching that just cause I, I love, I love this kind of also resurgent resurgence now of people wanting to see, you know, the making of whatever film, you know, like there's gonna be that show, the, the offer, you know, there's gonna be that yeah. Yeah. about the Godfather. Like I like that people are hungry for that stuff. Well, I think a lot of that comes from the Me Too movement and stories that weren't allowed to be said are now being, you know, people are allowed to complain about these psycho situations they were involved in that is not normal to regular people. But in Hollywood, it's Tuesday. So now, you know, we're, we're not accepting this as normal behavior. So now we get to kind of see the nitty gritty details of how some of our movies are made. And a lot of times it's not, not pleasant. Yeah. Gosh, man. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, I, I will. I will be seeing that. That's your number two. Yeah. All right. My number two is the one that I would recommend to you personally the most, and it is the Two Escobars from 2010. The Two Escobars is a proper uh, 30 for 30 ESPN film uh, uh, back in 2009, 2010, 2011. That era, uh, ESPN decided to fund. 30 films directed by 30 different filmmakers about 30 different stories in sports. Wow. And it's this, yeah, it's this incredible project where I, I, I actually own all of them. Uh, they're, cause they're, they're, they came out with this set of the first 15 and the second 15. And I was like, well, you know, I want these. So uh, they're, they're amazing. You can find them on, on different streaming services uh, for a while. They're on Netflix right now. I think some are on Hulu, maybe, I don't know, but the two Escobars is in my opinion, not even close, the best one that they did. Uh, ESPN Films has done a lot of amazing things, but the 30 for 30 series, and specifically the two Escobars, is it, it like is just lights, lights out. And when I was, you know, when I watched, I watched this on ESPN because they would air them on, on ESPN, you know, they would like promote them. They're still doing this. They're not doing proper 30 for 30s, but it's kind of a spinoff now. And they still do this. They had one, a really good one come out about Dennis Rodman maybe two years ago that was just incredible. Uh, and they're still doing them now. There was a really good New York Mets one that came out not that long ago. But again, this one is the one to watch because it involves maybe the you know, most popular drug dealer in the entire world, drug kingpin, uh, Pablo Escobar uh, and Andres Escobar. Pablo needs no introduction. He is, he is Pablo fucking Escobar. Andres Escobar uh, is a very, very, very talented Colombian uh, soccer player who captained the, the team in, two, in 1994 uh, World Cup. Now, that, that World Cup was here in the United States. Um, leading up to, to that World Cup, you know, Colombia was building this incredible, incredible team. 
They had, you know, Carlos Valderrama and Rene Higuita and, uh, as the goalkeeper and, and Andres Escobar. They had, a, you know, four or five guys who, who really could really fucking play. And they were looked at as one of the best teams in the entire world in the early, uh, late 80s, early 90s. And Andres maybe being the best player. Uh, Pablo took a, took a liking, you know, to, the, to these players and to what they had going on and would... Uh, he had this, you know, he had this, this crazy property that, uh, you know, a lot of people have heard about now and has been in that TV show um, on Netflix. But watching it, watching it really on a documentary and actually seeing Pablo Escobar is a totally different beast. And he had this, he had this amazing soccer field that looked like it was in the middle of a jungle. And he would bring guys out to play on this field, different Colombian players, Argentinian players. Uh, Chilean players, uh, Brazilian, whatever, all these different South American guys he'd bring out to play on this field while him and his drug buddies would fucking bet, you know, would gamble on who's going to win, you know, and that's an absolute dream of mine to hang out with, (laughs) to to hang out with Pablo, not necessarily, you know, fucking bet with a guy because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't bet anything with the guy, the guy's uh, fucking left thumb was worth more than my life. So, (laughs) so. Uh, he, you know, but to watch these guys that they would gamble on these soccer games uh, that nobody was watching, that wasn't televised, that wasn't anything that anybody saw. You know, he'd have these people come out uh, and, and and do these things. And the documentary covers that. The documentary covers Pablo Escobar getting very interested in the the club teams around Colombia and kind of trying to invest in them. And you know, to the extent where he's he's owning his own team and he's buying players because he has the most money in Colombia, And he's like, I'm bringing you here. You're coming to play for me and we're going to fucking win, you know? And of course, Andres Escobar being who he was and how good he was, he was like, I have to have this guy, uh, you know, and his, his rise is, is fast. Pablo Escobar's rise is one of the fastest, you know, in, in, in world history. And to even try to, put into words how big he was in 1994 is just, is just silly. Right. Uh, in the late eighties, early nineties, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, the guy's one of the most well-known people in the entire world in 1994, Andres Escobar playing for Columbia in the group stage of the world cup playing against, against the United States in Los Angeles at the Rose bowl, United States, not a very good team. Um, they've never been this mega powerhouse, They've always been kind of, you know, decent team, decent squad that, you know, could, could, can make the World Cup, but probably won't make a whole lot of noise. Uh, they, they beat Colombia in this game and very shocking for everybody. And the goal that happens for the U.S. was not necessarily, not necessarily scored by an American player, but the ball was crossed in by an American player. Andres Escobar slides, the ball hits him in the leg, and the ball rolls into the goal. So Andres is is then, uh, that's what they call an own goal. It's not really scored by the Americans. It's not really scored by the Colombians. Uh, It's like a, it's an accident. And Andres Escobar, best player on the team, the captain, the the lead defender is the guy whose leg it went off of. If you look at it in certain ways, it looks like he kind of does it on purpose. It's like, what were you doing? Why did you do this? Like, how did this happen? It's, it's as if Andres wanted this to happen is what it looked like to some people and definitely to the Colombian fans and to the, the fucking cartel and Pablo and his people. It was like, what did you just do? They lose the game. 
they end up not moving further than the group stage in the World Cups. They got ousted because they lost to the United States. You know, you lost to these fucking gringos who don't know how to play the game. And you guys are, you guys are supposed to be one of the top teams in the world. And you don't even advance to the knockout stages. So, Colombian players go back, go back home. Uh, and not long after that, Andres Escobar is murdered in Colombia. And, of course, when you have all these people, these cartel members, and these very powerful, very powerful criminals that run the betting world and run the sports world of your country, and that guy does that and ruins your chances at winning a bunch of money, you're going to take matters into your own hands. And Andres, who, by all accounts, did not want to go play at this Pablo Escobar fucking you know, resort he didn't want any part of that, that part of the game. He loved the game. He loved his family. He loved, he loved giving, to, giving back to the community. He loved going back and hanging out with kids and playing football with them and being a, being a, part, of, a part of the Colombian community. That's what he fed off of. That's, he wanted to be a leader. And that one mistake ended his life. That one silly mistake in a sporting event that ultimately is not going to matter, you know, is why his life ended. And this documentary goes very deep into all kinds of things around those two guys and the connection that they have. They're not related. Both their last name is Escobar. But gosh, their, their fate is intertwined forever. And just think when you mention Pablo Escobar, you should, you should have to mention Andres and you should have to mention the Colombian football team and how much pull that Pablo had on that team and on those players, that their lives, you know, uh, it's fucking scary, you know, and this is when you have a lot of people who complain about soccer, like, oh my God, why would you like that sport? People die over it, you know, uh, here in the United States, not so much. But in other places, in South America, there's areas in in in, uh, in Asia. You you don't fuck up. You don't you don't you don't you don't let your country down like that. Is how they look at it, and you can get you can get fucking annexed for it. So it's just this crazy sport that is 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 bigger than a religion to these people, and that's scary. That's fucking crazy. Uh, that. Yeah, that's a brilliant story. I definitely would like to check this one out. Um, Pablo Escobar, what a complex character. Because, you know, to the rest of the world, he's a, he's a demon. But in Colombia, he's still revered as a hero. You know, he rescued yeah. his neighborhood. He, like, yeah, they still revere him over there. It's fucking weird. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, in Medellin, it's like he's the king. He's like, yeah, yeah it's crazy. Pablo, it's, uh, that's crazy. The idea that he can just, you know, pick players from a roster and be like, this is my team now. They're going to come to my stadium and play for my amusement. That's fucking power. My God. Major, major power. Yeah. He, Pablo Escobar, this, one of the craziest things about how powerful he was and how the cartel continued past his death, right? Is Pablo dies. So most people say anyway, I know there's those conspiracy theorists out there. He dies in 1993, a year before this World Cup. 
his power went so deep as the cartel continued to do these things once he was gone, you know, continued to treat soccer like it was this religion that if my team loses, someone's going to pay. That influence is fucking nuts to me. Is I, I, can't, I can't really wrap my head around it, which is why I think the two Escobars is an absolute must-see. Oh, dude, at the height of his power, Pablo was making more money than most of the global economies. Like, the dude was yeah, his own fucking God. country. It was, yeah, I don't, we can't fathom the level of influence no. and power that that man had in the, in the world. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, God, I know. It really is. And it's like, you know, I think, I think people, I think it's, there, it's that weird line where people almost romanticize it. And it's like, no, you can't, well, you can't do yeah. that. You can't do that. There's a Netflix series about the guy, you know, fucking Narcos is like, he's got yeah. his own biopic where it's like, you know, a gritty I haven't seen the show, but I imagine it's, it, it deals with that a little bit. Yeah. I've seen season one because I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. I have to, you know, cause, 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 cause I, lo- I, I love Colombian history and I love their, the soccer team. So I wanted to watch more of that, you know? And I, I got that, I got that feeling of like, okay, this isn't fucking breaking bad. These are not fake characters. This is a real guy. You can't romanticize it like that. That's Narcos is scary. It's a dangerous show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It is weird that, you know, we do that. Sometimes we take real disasters, real monsters, and we kind of flip it almost to try to make them, you know, mythological. When in reality, I think we have an obligation to tell the story, right. To be as accurate as possible. Cause this is history. Uh, but that's just my yeah. two I no, I totally agree. No, um, well, that's great. <laughs> Those are, yeah, um, I'm surprised at how many on your list I, I actually want to see. <laughs> that's the one. That's that is the top one because it involves things that I think you would connect with. You know, the the Colombian stuff would be you know is right up your alley, and then involving drugs and soccer is like okay, yeah, sign me up. You know, not wrong. Uh, cool. Um, my number one is one of the most fascinating looks into the human psyche I've ever seen. Um, method acting is cool on paper. It's dangerous as shit. If you misuse it, if you start damaging yourself psychologically and ruin who you are as a human being, is it really worth it? My number one pick is Jim and Andy, the great beyond. I fucking knew it. <laughs> so this good. is a crazy fucking story. This is the story of the production of Jim Carrey's 1999 film, Man on the Moon, where he portrayed the late comedian Andy Kaufman. And what he did to become Andy Kaufman is he erased Jim Carrey. He wiped out his own personality, replaced it with Andy Kaufman, stayed in character for months, I think like almost a year. He picked fights with Andy Kaufman's enemies. He treated the cast and crew as if he was Kaufman. He would show up to random places as Tony Clifton and fuck with people. Like he became Kaufman on all levels. It was scary. Like the the production didn't know what to do. And uh, Carrie documented his transformation. Uh, I think maybe to look back and like, you know, tweak it. But all this footage was compiled into a documentary a couple of years ago. And it's unbelievable. I've never seen somebody replace themselves with somebody else mentally before. And it, you believe it. There's something so real and transformative in that performance specifically 
that you just don't even see Jim Carrey. And Carrey was interviewed about it, you know, years later. And he said that he's never fully recovered from this. He's never gotten back to 100% Jim Carrey, which is terrifying that you can disappear into a character so completely that you forget who you are. That's wild. That's mental illness. Um, but for the sake of the craft, it's amazing what people are willing to put themselves through to capture the essence of a character, real or fictional. And Carrie really proved his commitment to the, to the craft with this movie almost too much. And then he immediately went and did the Grinch. Like, what? What the fuck? I just, it's, it's such a great documentary. This is one where I urge you to watch Man on the Moon first so you can understand mm. who we're looking yes. at. Uh, but this is absolutely breathtaking, so in- brilliant and scary all at, all at once. It's by far the greatest uh, film documentary I've ever seen. Yeah, gosh, this is a good pick. Uh, I, re- I remember watching this. Uh, I watched this the, the doc with my dad. We were at home and we both we both kept kept commenting and thinking about what he did right after, you know, the Grinch and what 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 follows next and how his career didn't stop. You know, he just kind of kind of kept getting bigger and he kept kept challenging himself. You know, in 2004, he does Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and he's doing he's doing these dangerous roles where obviously he's taken it to the, to the, to the nth degree, you know, man on the moon, but he doesn't, he doesn't fall off the face of the earth or he doesn't lose control. He like continues to push the, push the craft, which is the most amazing part to me is that like, he's still around, you know, Jim Carrey is still very much a part of our film culture and film community and very much a person that people kind of look to. I, I'm, yeah, that's a, this is a great pick. I, I knew it was going to be here, so I was just waiting for it, for it to be talked about. Uh, talk about talk about a crazy day if you're going to do a double feature of Man on the Moon and Jim and Andy. You know, buckle up. That's what uh, I did. <laughs> that was yeah, my first time buckle, with both of these. Yeah, buckle buckle up if you uh, if you haven't watched those. You know, I think there must see stuff. I think if you care about the 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 art of, of acting and kind of becoming something that you're not is this is essential. And it's one of the best, one of the best looks we have into this kind of a, kind of a project experiment with someone who was arguably the biggest comedy superstar in the world at the time. You know, uh, the guy, the guy had just done so many amazing things in the nineties and goes on to do this, you know, at the end, it's yeah, it's a must see. Good, good pick. That's a great number one. There are moments during the, the doc where, like, you know, the, the cast of Taxi and like Kaufman's relatives and his friend uh, Bob Zamunda have this moment of like, holy shit, that's Andy. Like, they yeah. can see it. It's almost like Jim Carrey was possessed by his fucking ghost. It's crazy. Uh, I cannot stress how insanely committed he was. It's, you got to see it to believe it. Yeah, truly, truly, I, I don't think there's any way to to really how, how how intense it is watching him, especially if you are you know a Dumb and Dumber and The Mask, you know Ace Ventura. If you're a fan of those films and what he did before, it's just it's it's pretty tough. It's pretty flooring. Um, 
Ah, good pick. It makes me kind of want to go back and watch both of them again. Just because it's, it's been since it, when the doc came out, I watched it very quickly on Netflix and I was like, holy shit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is something else, you know, and it, it, you know, I've seen man on the moon since then, um, seen that a few times, but I haven't watched that doc again. And maybe it's time to go back and check it out. Good pick, man. Um, well, yeah, this is not any lighter. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my number one to finish off the, the this has been amazing. I, I, I didn't expect this to be this, uh, this fun to kind of go down, talk about these documentaries, but uh, my number one is hoop dreams, 1994. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If you know me, uh, yeah, this is pretty, 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 pretty obvious. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to save a lot of thoughts because we are going to do this on the show at some point. Um, this is a three hour this is a three hour documentary to me is the, the Mecca of sports documentaries. There's nothing I've seen. That's better. Um, anything I've seen that right is a mini series, docu-series, whatever, uh, like the last dance, which is a, you know, massive 10 hour type thing. Uh, OJ made America, which is another huge, massive project. Um, uh, one of my personal favorites is basketball love story, which is like 20 hours. So, you know, you, you, you find those things and you're like, oh my God, I'm getting so much information back that it's getting me just so amped up for what I'm passionate for. This is a film. This is a film that was constructed just like all these other docs where you have a certain amount of footage and you got to put it together. Uh, and one of my favorite things about Hoop Dreams is that it wasn't nominated for best documentary, but it was nominated for best film editing. <laughs> uh, so, so stupid. Should have won. Uh, it's it's one of the premier fucking documentaries that if you've seen it, you're just kind of like, yep, 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 yep. William and Arthur, those two guys are the fucking shit. You know, it follows the it follows these two kids from Chicago as they go from the beginning of high school till the end when they're trying to go to college, trying to go uh, play in the NBA, that type of thing. It follows their journey of how hard it is, just how difficult it is, and how you have to be very, very talented and work very, very hard. But you also have to have a lot of luck on your side to get through and make it to something like the NBA. Uh, there's only, you know, there's only a couple hundred people who, you know, really, really matter as far as players in the NBA every year. And to become one of those guys is very fucking hard. And this this film, you know, there's there's kind of a a running theme in mind of just kind of like of of this kind of overlying sadness of just just how dark it can be at times to be an athlete and the places you have to go, the, the freakish nature you have to have to just say, you know, most, most people, including myself are just like, nah, I'd rather sit down and just kind of, you know, fucking eat a cheeseburger and watch whatever. These guys are like, no, I have to get up. I have to get up. I have to go work out. I have to go play. I have to get better at my craft because that's what I want to do. That's why I, that's how I want to get out of my current situation so I can have a better situation. And that's hoop dreams through and through these, these kids. It is literally their dream to make sure that they get out of their certain the situation they're put in to start the hand they're dealt so they can get a better hand and move on. Very much goes correlates with what's happening in, in the documentary we're going to be talking about here shortly undefeated where it's just such a slim chance of you really getting out of your situation because you're working really hard. You're trying really hard. You're trying to you know, be good at your sport and also keep your grades up. 
and you're trying to do this and trying to do that and trying to battle family life, home life, school, and your the most important thing, your craft. You know, you want you want to master it, and that is probably my favorite thing about sports documentaries is when you when you catch someone at an age you know, mostly, you know, it's the best when it's in high school and you catch them at that time and you see them becoming, you know, this is these as cliche as it is. And I didn't believe it when I was in high school, but these years matter a lot to who you're going to become and what's going to happen in your future. How serious are you about what you want to do with your life? Uh, from, from my own experience, I fucked around a lot when I was 16, 17, 18. And and it shows now, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still like really wrapping my head around who I am and what I'm trying to become and who, what kind of person I want to be. And when you're an athlete, it's fucking times a hundred because it's like, not only do you have to figure yourself out, but you have to be so good at this thing and people are pushing you to be so good at this thing. That's, that's, that is your life. You know, that's what people expect of you. When you become an amazing football player, if you don't, if you're not amazing the rest of the time, Nobody gives a shit. Nobody fucking cares. If you get hurt, nobody fucking cares. And that's one of the scariest things about trying to be an athlete and make it out of your situation to get to a better one is that most of you are going to fail and you're going to fall short. And Hoop Dreams just captures all of those things in such a beautiful way, in such a dark way that I think, I think, I think it's the must-see. I think it's stuff you bought this for me on criterion not that long ago and now i own it um but i love hoop dreams i can't we're gonna do it on the show at some point this year uh very very excited to kind of you know really really talk about it but i want to kind of save it you know yeah i know you've been this is one that keeps coming up randomly in conversation so i know it's it's coming um yeah it does it sucks about you know being there's a there's positives and negatives about, you know, being an athlete. And I feel like, you know, outside of documentaries, all we see is the positive. All we see is the, you know, the glamorous lifestyle, the Dorito sponsorships, all that shit. But yeah, you know, a lot of times that's all they've got. If they, you know, tear their ACL or something, that's it. They don't have anything to fall back on. Like we see that in undefeated, like their academic, you know, their academics aren't great. They don't test well. Football is all they've got. And in this case, you know, basketball, it's, it's crazy to think that if you have an injury, your life, as you know, it is over that you've got nothing else to do to do. I mean, that's terrifying. I can't imagine the immense pressure these, these guys are up on all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. One little mistake, one little mess up and like, it could be over. Uh, this one's directed by Steve James, written by Steve James and Frederick Marks. They're both kind of these geniuses who came together, saw these two players, and they were like, holy shit, we got to follow them. Uh, and yeah, I, I cannot wait to talk about this at length at some point. It is a heavy, heavy one. Three hours. You are not going to want to close your eyes at any moment during this one. It is just, holy shit, intoxicating. And one of my straight up films from 19, which is saying a lot because that's a kick ass year. Yeah, for sure. I'm, you know, I was hesitant. I've been hesitant about that one too. I'm, I'm fucking not anymore. Bring it on. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Bring it on. It's on Criterion. We own it now. <laughs> uh, that's great. 
Awesome, man. Well, let's let's recap our list here real quick, and then we'll start talking about undefeated. Sounds good. Um, my number five, the last blockbuster. Number four, Boris Karloff, the man behind the monster. Number three, I knew it was you rediscovering John Cazale. Number two, Lost Soul, the insane journey behind Richard Stanley's The Island of Dr. Moreau. And number one, Jim and Andy, the great beyond. Beautiful. I love that. I love that touch, the great beyond. I think that's a great touch. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Just kind of whoa, ambiguous. What's going on? Uh, <laughs> my number five is Lenny Cook. Uh, number four, Magic and Magic and Bird, uh, Courtship of Rivals. Number three, Diego Maradona. Number two, The Two Escobars. And number one, Hoop Dreams. Hell yeah, man. Very cool. Now, uh, I, I, Undefeated is close to being in my top five. Uh, undefeated is very, very, very good. You know, I've seen a lot of, a lot of sports documentaries. Undefeated is not doing anything structurally that is, whoa, out of this world or anything but it fucking does exactly what it needs to do. And it, it hits home hard and you learn specifically about three kids that go to the school. Uh, it's, it's OC, OC Brown, who's awesome. Uh, it's Montreal money Brown and it's, uh, uh, Chavis Daniels. Those three kids, you really get to look at, at what, what kind of person they are and their journey throughout this football season. And of course, coach Bill Courtney at Manassas, uh, Memphis, uh, high school, you know, these, the Manassas Tigers uh, and these kids that go to this underprivileged, underfunded, just school that se- seems like a lot of the people that work there don't give a shit, you know, and you have those outliers like Bill Courtney, uh, a volunteer football coach who's like, no, like the difference that like making a difference in a kid's life, like starts, starts with their teachers and their, their parents and the adults in their life who can be an example. And this documentary does exactly what it's supposed to do. You know, it, it runs its course. You get to see the whole football season. You learn a little bit about the background of Manassas. You understand that, you know, the stakes of them getting to the playoffs and trying to win a game. Uh, you understand the stakes of good God. You understand the stakes of OC trying to get a score of what is it? Uh, 16 or higher yeah. uh, on his SAT. Right. Yeah. Like just, it, this is, this is massive. Dude, there were so many moments that I, I related to, and I don't even play or care about football, but there were moments where I was like, I get it. I mean, as a, you know, as a kid, having a teacher take an interest in you and an interest in what you like and like nurturing your love of something is paramount to you going somewhere. You know, I had that, I had an, um, an eighth grade English teacher who really like, who noticed that I liked to write and encouraged me to write and you know, come up with my own stories and really like push me. And now, you know, I'm, I write for fun. I've written three books. Like I write for the show. I, I write for fun. And I don't know if I'd have as much of a passion if I hadn't had somebody tell me back then that, you know, I was good at it. Like you need that. And I, I'm so glad these kids had that in this coach. Who's like the coolest guy in the fucking world that he would dedicate his time to making sure these kids had a plan had discipline, character, something to fight for. And just on his own dime, like he, you know, he was paying for this out of pocket. He was sacrificing time with his own family because he knew these kids needed him. And that's, how do you not just fall in love with that? You got to be a cold, heartless son of a bitch to not relate to this thing. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Fucking A, man. Bill Courtney, uh, 
he's got he's got some fucking quotes in this documentary that are like holy shit dude <laughs> this is this guy's fucking he's kind of kind of unhinged but he's also he's he's very dead set on what he wants to do what he wants to do. he he wants he wants to win he wants to win football games but he also wants these kids to win off the field that's that that's fucking kick ass undefeated uh like i said at the top of the show 2011 it's nominated uh, one best documentary so we're going to look at that category here in a minute uh directed by daniel lindsay and tj martin these two guys who just saw saw a story they saw a story heard about bill courtney heard about manassas and their long streak of just losing 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 every year you know oh and ten one and nine two and eight just shitty shitty inner city memphis school that has no chance on the football field and i, I loved at the beginning when uh bill courtney's talking about how bigger schools and in, in tennessee would pay them you know, thousands of dollars to go play them to get their asses fucking handed to them. And they'd come back and that's how they paid for jerseys and pads and helmets. And that's how they, how they had a fucking football program. That's so fucked up. It's like they were rodeo clowns. Like just yeah, like a, yeah. a joke to this, to the football, to the like high school football community. It was like, Oh, let's pay these assholes to put on a show for a little bit. We'll throw them a check and you know, then we'll go play real football. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> God, man, just ins- insanity. <laughs> uh, it's it's really crazy, and I, I love what this documentary does with the landscape of, of of Memphis and what you get to see at the school, and just how these kids interact. It's really cool. Now, it was up against uh, some pretty some pretty pretty interesting competition. Did you get to watch anything else from the? I didn't. Regrettably, it's been a loaded week for for other shows. And for school and shit. So no, sorry. <laughs> I understand. I understand. That's okay. I I, I watched one, um, Pina by Wim Winders, who's just a wonderful filmmaker. Uh, I've seen Paradise Lost. One of my favorite documentaries of all time is, is Paradise Lost uh, one, two, and three. Love those. Uh, I have not seen If a Tree Falls, and I have not seen Helen Back Again. So I've seen three of these. Um, and I got I gotta say, I, I think Undefeated's really good, but. Paradise Lost 3, man. Uh, Purgatory is, you know, I, I spoke about the true crime documentary is probably the strongest. It's the most, like, most appealing because you're watching real crime, like, unfold in front of your eyes. Uh, and Paradise Lost is the, you know, the third one is is the end. It's the final piece of, of that, you know, trilogy of documentaries. And good God, you know, it's some of the darkest shit I've ever seen. It's not for everybody as far, you know, you, you should not watch it if you have a weak stomach. It is tough stuff. That, that crime, and specifically in Paradise Lost, the first one, they really go into it, right? Of, of like what actually happened. These kids that were murdered and mutilated, you know, and had, had their, you know, I, I, you, you, you know I'm not going to even speak about because, I, 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 you know, I think you really have to have some fucking, uh, what do you call them? You got to have those... Uh, those like warnings, you know, before you see something paradise lost is not for everybody, but good God, if you have that kind of a mind that can watch stuff like that and digest it and just watch it, you know, and see the story for itself. I think it's must see stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. Uh, It is weird. Like documentaries, especially you kind of have to pick. I'm one, you know, I'm sure it's different picking the winner here. You got to take into account the subject matter and the the stakes and like 
the significance to culture. And it is, it's tough to argue like which make, which is like more significant. I don't know if you can make that call. No, 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 that's, that's, yeah, I think I think a lot of categories you can say that about, but most specifically documentary. You know, it's like you know, with the with the three that I've seen, you got undefeated football documentary about kids overcoming you know their their situation and where they're at society. Uh, Paradise Lost Three is the culmination of this crazy story of the West Memphis Three, these three kids that were convicted of murdering these children and then later on exonerated. Uh, and then Pina is a fucking dance documentary about a choreographer uh, that was a complete mastermind named Pina Bausch. And hey, those are completely different. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're vastly, vastly different. And I think some people would think Pina is boring as hell and does not matter in the, in the long, in the long, you know, long run of things. Cause it's just people dancing the entire time. It's, it's very, very artsy very out there and you're just watching people do her dances because she passed away in 2009 so they make this documentary and it's kind of an ode to her right i loved it i thought it was great i thought it was really interesting i'm not a huge dance fan but i enjoyed what was happening in pina paradise lost three ultimately dark like true crime to the to the fucking bone and then yeah undefeated a sports doc and helen back again is about a guy who comes home from afghanistan and has ptsd so it's like what are you gonna do yeah, I mean, look at 2018, you know, Minding the Gap was a film about, you know, three inner city kids struggling to find identity through skateboarding. What beats it? Dude climbing a mountain. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Minding the Gap is, yeah, good God, I love that movie. I'm so glad that was the first documentary did because that just, there's just perfection. Uh, but, I, but yeah, Free Solo, you know, good stuff, completely different. Uh, this is a crazy category. I love looking at them. I think... I think we're going to be more and more interested in kind of tackling some of these as we go, just because we've gotten two amazing films and two amazing uh, episodes out of it, you know, uh, with undefeated and mind of the gap. So this is really cool stuff. I love this, this fucking ceremony. This is when the artist uh, <laughs> fucking wins best picture, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, beats one of my all time favorites from the decade Moneyball, which I think definitely should have won. Uh, just a just a crazy group of movies that were up for best picture uh, really interesting uh group of directors you know th- this is this is a cool ceremony that you look back you know it's it's 10 years old now you know 84th we've got the 94th academy awards coming next month so it's just an interesting thing to look at yeah it's you know the artist love it or hate it is a you know it's a film about hollywood and films about hollywood always seem to have a leg up weird when you know it's hollywood picking the movies but um, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a decent film. I think it's a good watch. I don't think it should have won best picture, you know, maybe like sound editing, but you know, when Moneyball's sitting right there, I don't know. I don't, I don't call the yeah. shots. Oh. <laughs> I love Moneyball. I think Moneyball is for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I showed it to my family who doesn't care about baseball, doesn't care about statistics. And they were fucking in, like they loved it. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's that. That's that, that movie magic, you know, where you take something and you combine it with in- incredible writing from Sorkin and incredible directing from Bennett Miller and Brad 
fucking pit, <laughs> you know, and, and you, that's that movie magic where you can kind of take anything and make it interesting, you know, uh, and Sorkin is clearly the master of kind of taking a workplace where people are kind of fucking butting heads or they're figuring stuff out together and he can make it the most interesting shit in existence. So, uh, yeah, love, 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 love that movie. Uh, we did that one long time ago. <laughs> that was that was one. That's one I would redo on this show just because like I want to, I want to like talk about it again. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's that fucking good. Well, just have to do a showdown on the artist someday. Yeah, yeah, we we will we will do that one day. Uh, I you know I I own a lot of these movies. You know I own the artist, the Descendants. Uh, Midnight in Paris, Moneyball, Tree of Life. Yeah, I, I like this. I like this group overall. I just think it's weird. It's a weird one. Yeah, it is a weird one. I own a few of these too. Uh, I don't know. It feels like there was, everyone was trying to make some sort of point here instead of just celebrating <laughs> the work. Like everyone's trying to change the world here. And sometimes people just, you know, you can just make a movie. You don't have to make a political statement too. <laughs> Not all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the early 2010s. What an interesting time. Uh, yeah. Well, I want to get. I want to give some awards out to Undefeated. Keep talking about Undefeated. Uh, so you know, you know the drill. We got the Tarantino for best quote. We got the Ennio Morricone for best music moment, which this has some kick-ass songs in it. Uh, we have the Philip Seymour Hoffman Award for not best performance, but our favorite person from the doc. You know, the, the person that we kind of took the most from. Uh, and then we have the Roger Deakins for the best scene of the documentary. So take it away with your Tarantino. Um, surprisingly, I, I ha- uh, the line I have is not one of Coach Bill's uh, little nuggets of wisdom, as many as I could have gone with. Um, it's a quote from Aaron Hayden, his special guest star, who pops in towards the beginning. Mm. Um, and Aaron Hayden's there to basically tell everybody, like, you don't need a perfect home life to be an athlete. You know, I came from a shit situation and here I am. And I, I like that encouragement you know your life is what you make it and he points that out with a line it's not where you start it's where you finish and i love that anybody can start the race but it takes a fucking champion to finish that race it's a great life lesson and really reflects anybody who's trying to do something yeah yeah and and it's vital to have someone who you know as I get older, I realize like all that shit, you know, people I saw speak and people who like you know, have been through stuff and have been through trials and tribulations and, and, and come out on top and like, you know, they're, they're doing the thing they love. You, you realize as you get older, like, oh, those people are fucking cool, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, and he, when he comes into that room and he's talking to all these kids, it's good for those kids to have proof of someone who just pushed through, you know, just pushed, just kept pushing, 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 doing the right thing over and over and over. And uh, you'll be rewarded. I love that. I love how that comes full circle later on, too. Very cool. Yeah. This movie has a weird um, kind of narrative. It comes from Bill Courtney. It, it does. It, right? Yeah. I, I think the ending of Undefeated takes it to a whole other level, where the last, like, 10 minutes, you're like, oh, my God, this is actually kind of genius. Uh, <laughs> but my, my, my quote comes from Bill Courtney. He, he has some, some fucking amazing lines in this movie. But my favorite is... Uh, one that I've always wanted to say to every fucking football coach uh, in the entire world. And it is, uh, you think football builds character, which it does not. Football reveals character. <laughs> God, I played football, you know, uh, when I was younger. And I had coaches who were 
absolute fucking lunatics and treated football as if this is your life. Everything else that happens is, is, is fluff. It's like the fact that Bill Courtney realized when he does that bit about the clapping and he's like, one, two, three, four, the games are over. That's it. You know, it's this, it's this quick thing that happens and it's over. It's done. You blink and you're on to the next thing. The stuff in between, the shit that happens in between is your life. I feel like Bill Courtney is one of the only football coaches in existence that understands that, that understands that what happens between these lines is a game. And it's a game you should play with all you have. But when you're done, it's done. It's over. And the rest of what you do, you got to carry yourself the way you want to carry yourself on a football field. You know, you got to carry yourself in life, in real life with your friends, with your family. That's, that's the stuff that really matters. That's the juice. That's the shit that you got to be, got to be willing to put, put effort into, you know, not just the thing that's fun inside the lines, playing football, competing. You gotta, you gotta do it all the time. You gotta try, always try. Yeah. Bill's not teaching these kids how to play football. Anybody can play football. He's teaching these kids life lessons that they can carry with them. He's teaching them discipline and character and team building and things that matter in life through football. And that's a good teacher. That's a good coach. That's somebody who understands that these kids need, they need support, not just on the field, but off the field. And that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I, Bill Courtney's presence, how present he is during the game. And he's so into it. He's like, we got to fucking do this. We got to do this. We got to do that. And then when it's over, he very quickly goes back to like counselor. Like, like, like he's a therapist and he's like, look, you know, this happened, this happened, this happened, you know, today we failed, but tomorrow's a new day. You know, he's always reminding them that like, there's always something to kind of get up for. Even if it's just having dinner with your friends, you know, you always be present, always put your best foot forward, always do the right thing. I I fucking love that about Bill Courtney. He's great, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He is so cool. Love it, man. Uh, the Ennio Morricone Award. This is an interesting one because you got some, you got some score here, but you also have a pretty cool soundtrack that has that has has some interesting, interesting flavors. So what'd you go with? I did have the opening credits for the longest time because I was like, that's some badass music. I'm I'm into this. But then um, we met OC, and the introduction to OC is "Heartbroken in Disrepair" by Dan Auerbach, and I was like, fuck. I'm in. Holy hell, this is awesome. I was not expecting to hear Dan Auerbach in this movie. And I was like, this is fucking great. <laughs> yeah, that's my choice. That's my choice too. Gotta be. <laughs> yeah. Right you, you, yeah, you know what? You know, if you listen to that, we're, we're Black Keys guys. Uh, back when we did um, Up in the Air, I chose a Black Keys song for my Inyo for that movie. And here's Dan Auerbach again. That you're like watching OC just fucking plow through these guys. You're like, fuck yeah. (laughs) It's so, it's so cool. Oh man. One of my favorite things about docs sports documentaries is those little needle drops where you get, you get amped for watching somebody you've never met in your life. (laughs) And you're like, let's go, man. You know, like this is, this is OC, this 300 pound beast of a machine that is moving kids out of the way, just pushing them to the side. And yeah, Dan Auerbach is, is in the background, just fucking jamming. Really cool. Yeah, it was a great 
introduction to one of our heroes and his story might be my favorite just because everything he goes through and what he succeeds in getting is so powerful. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. We'll go right into the Philip Seymour Hoffman. Is that, is it OC for you? It's not, uh, but a little bit later, a little bit later, but um, <laughs> for my, my PSH is definitely uh, coach bill. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, he probably like, if I went to that school, he probably could have convinced me to join the football team. <laughs> oh yeah. hundred percent. He could, he could have convinced me to run through a fucking brick wall. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. A pep talk from this dude is worth a million pep talks. Like this guy knows exactly which buttons to press to make you feel like you accomplished something and that your life is worth it. And that is amazing. This guy should be a life coach. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's amazing. Uh, the moments he has with these kids, like, especially like, toward, towards the end when he's like hugging these kids and like telling them, like, I'm so proud to have been your coach. And everyone's just crying. Like, how do you not fall apart, man? Um, he cares so much. I mean, what he does for, you know, when he, um, when money like gets pissed and leaves the auditorium, he goes and finds money and tells him like, you know, I'm glad you got out of there before you lost your cool, but I need you to come back. Like just everybody on that team is important to him. He wants to make sure everybody gets the same level of attention of uh, kind of life education through him. It's the guy is a fucking role model. And I'm, I, I really hope that this documentary especially got him all sorts of attention and yeah, the guy's the best. Yeah. It, uh, he's amazing. I, I chose someone different, but Bill Courtney, I, one of my favorite things that happens is him talk about his childhood. Mm. And when he would go home from the game, specifically that one game where he talks about how he had the game winning touchdown, right? Jesus. Is that, is that your Deacons? I don't want to step on it. <laughs> it's not, but I have, it did stay okay. with me because of just, you know, I, I can relate to that exact situation. Uh, yeah. God, we have, when he, when he speaks about the other kids would be walking and their dad would hold their helmet and their pads. Right. When the movie, I'm getting fucking goosebumps thinking about it right now, when it comes back around and he's doing that for his kid, Oh, Jesus Christ almighty. That, that, that sh- fucking shatters me, you know, uh, what a, what a guy, you know, this dude, he, he has four kids, owns his own wood company, his own hardwood company, and then coaches these kids on the side. And, uh, one of my favorite things is about him is that he knew when to give it up. He knew when his job was done, when, uh, he had to call it quits. He couldn't give it his all anymore. So he said, you know what, if I can't be here a hundred percent, I'm not going to be here at all. I respect that so much. I respect when people can walk away from something when they know they can't commit the entire way. Uh, Bill Courtney is an excellent pick and is, is the main character of our documentary, right? He's the main person. He's the guy we're really following and we're watching. This is the adult in the room. Um, but I, I chose money. I chose Montreal Brown. Um, boy, oh boy, does this guy have a roller coaster of a season? And there's something, something that leaves me wondering about him specifically that scene that might be kind of to some people a throwaway or kind of silly, 
But when he's um, talking about his turtle and he's talking about how the turtle is, he's like, it's like a person, you know, it's like a human being. You have the hard shell on the outside and then on the inside, you're just skin and bones. You're just kind of soft, you know, you're just kind of like nothing. But you're always, you're always when you're out in public and you're out, out in the out in the world, you always have that shell on and you're always ready to ready to show how thick your skin is, you know, and show how hard your shell is. And I, I thought that was so fascinating, especially with money, because we see him get so frustrated with the situation he's in. He is so smart, so intelligent, and has this uncanny ability to match people that are way bigger than him on the football field. He's able to use his brain and use like the gifts that he has to kind of be a really effective player. I love that about money. I love that so much. His, his ending when we see Bill Courtney go up to him is like, ah, uh, is, 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 uh, is kind of why you watch stuff, you know, is why specifically documentaries, why you watch stuff for that, that glimmer of hope. Um, and he's able to go to Southern Miss afterwards, you know, and, and have a life. Um, I would love to kind of read more about money, Montreal Brown, and see where he's at now. Cause this is over 10 years ago. You know, I would love to see what's he doing now nowadays, you know, is he doing all right? Like this guy has that impact on me. Uh, really, really, really like him. I liked his insight on everything. When he was able to talk, I was like, Holy shit, this guy, this guy means a lot. So yeah, I, you could go with money. You could go with OC. You could go with Chavis. You could go with Bill Courtney. I think those four, you got it. That's a good pick. That scene where Chavis is getting the uh, the Uncommon Man Award, and he makes it a point to point to show that money, like he matters too. That his struggle was worth it. After their fight throughout the whole movie, for Chavis to have that kind of emotional growth was very satisfying, very cool. And that money ended up getting to, you know, manage a football team of his own is fucking beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that, that's, that's my Deacons is when Chavis steps up when Chavis steps up and, you know, he gets, he, you know, he, he comes, he comes out of a youth penitentiary center for 15 months, comes back, goes to school, can't get his shit together, gets into a fight, fights with money, calls him, calls him slurs, calls him gay. And then comes back around and in, in, in one fucking football season that lasts like 10 weeks, comes back around and he's able to say, I was wrong. My bad. When I got suspended from the team, I didn't know if I was going to come back, but I came back, became an effective player, got my shit together, gets the uncommon man award because he dominated in that one game. And then calls out money. This guy that, like you said, they, it seems like they hate each other. And money looks up like, what the fuck is happening right now? <laughs> is Chavis Daniels really like shouting me out right now? I love that moment. And seeing Bill's face when that happens, his shock. And he's like, wait, what? Like, I actually got through to this guy? <laughs> you know? it, is, it is such a rewarding moment watching Chavis speak in front of the whole team, uh, which has to be hard in itself. And it, admit he's wrong. Admit that money's the man, that everybody should be looking up to money because he's been, he's been dealt a shit hand, being hurt, being out of the games, you know. Uh, amazing stuff. Yeah, it was between that and another scene. I'll see what yours is. Uh, that's great. Um, that was a powerful scene. Um, I do like earlier when, they're at, when you find out that Chavis was in juvie 
And Bill tells them, like, you can ask him if he wants to talk about it, but he doesn't want to divulge the details because it's not his place to tell that story. I appreciated the hell out of that. Like, he values their privacy, too. Um, just a cool throwaway. Um, yeah, my, very, very cool. My scene was for a while the scene where money finds out that he got a full ride due to a generous benefactor. I love that. Him just collapsing into, like, gratitude was, was so real. But it got eclipsed later on when Bill hugs OC and he collapses. When he falls apart and just says, like, I'm going to say something, but give me a minute here. Like, Jesus Christ, man. I, oh, you just, you feel it. And then OC starts crying and you just feel this powerful moment of just, you know, student and teacher of just how much they both mean to one another. And how much they've influenced each other's lives. And you just believe every second of it because it is real. It's, you, can't, you can't fabricate emotion like that. You can't. It only exists in the real world. And these are the moments we find through these documentaries. And I was just, I was floored. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that's the one I was talking about. <laughs> when, when Bill's like, I love you, buddy. You know, and kind of hits him on the head. And OC's like, I love you too, coach. Like, Oh man. And this is, these, these, these are two big, big boys, you know, hugging it out and just kind of crying and collapsing. And it's such a beautiful moment after they, after they lose that, that playoff game against Westview, you know, fuck Westview. (laughs) I wanted Manassas to win so bad. (laughs) Uh, But that's one of my favorite things about this documentary is that not everything is like a Cinderella ending, you know, not everything is that way, you know, Someone has to lose and they lose, they lose the game. And you can see that how much it means to all of them. And you can see that this is the end of the ride between Bill Courtney and a lot of these kids, you know, and how much he means to their life and just how, you know, how important it is that someone authoritative steps up, you know, uh, very cool. Ah, so good. I'm so glad you liked this doc. (laughs) Me too, man. Me too. Um, I don't rank docs on the, the website. It's just hard to review a documentary, but if I was to give this a one out of 10, it is a nine. It, yeah. I think after talking about it, I had it as a four star on letterbox. So I guess that's an eight by math, but this feels like a nine. It feels like it's close to close to a 10 type thing. Just, just does exactly what it's supposed to do as a documentary. Just teaches you some stuff, uh, gets you close to these people. These, these, these real life, um, real life people that are dealing with, very serious things. And then, and you're, you're left with this, this story that you, you want to tell everybody, you know, and I hope everybody goes out and sees, you know, goes out and watches undefeated. It's on Netflix. It's been on Netflix for, for a long time. It's very easy to, to get access to. So uh, I'm glad, I'm glad this is the second one we did and, you know, Super Bowl Sunday uh, it's, it's football day. So undefeated, it felt right. Yep. Not going to argue with that. I might actually watch the game now. Yeah. You're like, Where's OC? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's funny. If you, if you were to just for shits and giggles, uh, if you were to choose between just, just as a, as, as a fun little project between the Rams and the Bengals, who, who would you say is going to win? I'm all right. I I'm pulling for the Bengals entirely because of that Tom Segura bit with Pac-Man. Yes. There you go. I knew you were going to have <laughs> something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I, I, 
I've been torn. I really like both teams. Uh, the Bengals are kind of this young up and coming team. Their quarterback, this is just his second year of being in the NFL. Uh, their best offensive player, Jamar Chase, is a rookie. Uh, but then the Rams, one of my best friends in the world, uh, Andrew, Andrew Bachman, is a massive, the biggest Rams fan I've ever met in my life. And I would love to see them win for my buddy Andrew, just because I know he'd be happy for the rest of the year if they win the Super Bowl. Uh, but either way, I, I'll, I'll be all right. You know, I'm not, neither team, neither of these teams do I dislike. You know, they both, they both have really cool qualities about them. And um, I'm excited. I'm excited. So if you're listening to this, you know, chances are the game's either going on or it's happened already. But we're, again, we're recording this on Friday night. So these are fresh, fresh predictions. You're going Bengals. I'll go Rams. Fuck it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Uh, what do we have this week on, on the other, the other shows? Wow. Monday's sneak preview. Uh, we'll be covering uh, Kenneth Bromick's Death on the Nile, uh, the latest Hercule Poirot adventure. Hope it's good. I'm seeing it tomorrow. Uh, Wednesday is the t- 2003 remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on Filmgasm. Very excited. Uh, the new Texas Chainsaw comes out on Netflix on Friday. So we're doing full t- Texas Chainsaw on all of our shows. Beyond the Bad is Texas Chainsaw Massacre of the Next Generation. From 95, the one that Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger have been trying to distance themselves from for almost 30 years with no success. So <laughs> ought to be a blast. That's awesome. That'll get broken up on Sunday, next Sunday by uh, Best Picture Showdown. That's uh, going to be our 90th episode on this show, which is crazy. <laughs> We're approaching, approaching 100 very rapidly. Um, this showdown is going to be really special because it's uh, around 2013's 12 Years a Slave, which is just a incredibly epic, daunting, fucking scary, very real uh, Best Picture winner directed by Steve McQueen, starring a bunch of amazing, amazing performers. So I'm excited to uh, be back here next week, talk about 2013. We're going to, you know, of course, do our Best Picture stuff, rank those movies, kind of talk about the whole category uh and give out awards to 12 years of slave. So I'm looking forward to it. I haven't seen that movie in a while, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Same here. I saw it once in like 2015 and thought this was great, but Holy shit was this dark. So I think it's been a good enough time for me to revisit this film with uh, everything I've learned since. Yeah, there you go. That's what it's all about. So yeah, we got a jam packed week here. going to be a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for listening with us today. Hope you get inspired to go watch more documentaries because they're important. <laughs> <laughs> uh do you do you uh you have one on your radar now i assume the two escobars is the one that you're 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 ready to watch yeah i that's absolutely insane i want to look into that that yeah for sure yeah i wish we could do it on on this show so bad but it wasn't you know didn't win anything wasn't nominated so that happens it's going to happen with the, the docs you know they only have that one category where they can make noise uh unless you're hoop dreams and you get nominated for fucking best film editing I don't know how that works, but anyway, thank you for being with us guys. Uh, We'll see you next week.